Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Talk Recorded live.
the rainbows, the thunder, the lightning, the earthquake, the peace, the joy, and the pain, and the tribulation. Thank you for all things at all times. Praise your holy name. You are God, and you are the creator, and this world belongs to you and not to the devil. Scriptures say that the whole world is yours and the inhabitants thereof. Amen. And even though the devil may be the God of the lost, he is not God, he is not creator, and this earth does not belong to him. And he is not our God. The devil is the God of the lost. And we are not the lost. We are not of the night. We are not of darkness. But we are of the light, of the glory of God. We are your inheritance your children, your descendants, your blessed people, your kingdom, your government, and your citizens, and your children. Praise your holy name. Father, we gather here today to worship you and to hear your word, to receive instruction for life and not death, but instruction for life, that we may live acceptable to you be blessed, receive joy, receive victory, receive deliverance. For the devil came to steal, to kill, and destroy, but you came to give life and life more abundantly. We accept the life. We accept the light, the joy, the deliverance, the salvation. We accept it in Jesus' name, for we are more than conquerors, in Jesus Christ, we are the people of God. We are the kingdom of God. We are the church of God. We will be your people, Father, and you will be our God. We agree. We say, I do. We enter into contract. We enter into the covenant. We enter into the agreement that we will be your people and keep your commandments, and you will be our God. And even though many people have entered into that covenant and broke it, we will not break it. And we are committed unto you and will grow in that commitment rather than shrinking back from that commitment. We will grow in that commitment. We will draw near unto you in holiness, in righteousness, in obedience and in full surrender. Father, if there be anything in us that is not pleasing to you, any thought, any word, any action, any rebellion, any disobedience, then please consume that out of us by the presence of your fire, by the presence of your smoke, by the presence of your glory, by your presence, Lord, consume out the wickedness from us, consume out the evil, the darkness, the wickedness, the sinfulness, the rebellion, the disobedience, the unbelief, the unfaithfulness, the untrusting, the lies, the deceptions, false doctrines, worldliness, carnalness, immaturity, anything that's not pleasing to you, Father, consume from us by your presence. Come into us, throw out the trash, burn out the trash, remove it from us, Lord, and dwell in us more. 
that we may hear your voice, understand your voice, recognize your voice, and follow your voice more than ever before. Now is not a time for us to be hindered, but a time for us to fully surrender to you. Please show us our sins. Please tell us our sins. Please reveal to us our sins. Bring us into the fullness of your spirit and into the center of your will. Help us, Father, today to get more into the center of your will. Tomorrow, to get more in the center of your will. What you really want, help us to stop fighting your will. Father, help us to let go of what we want. Help us to let go of our plans, of our will, of our wants, of our desires, and to come into full alignment with what you really want from us what you really want us to do and not do, that we come into the more perfect will of your holiness, the way you want it, Father. You are God. You are creator. We are your people. We are your bride. We are your children. You are the one that gives the commands, the guidance, the leadership, the direction. If you say no, we must accept that. If you say go, we must accept that. Whatever you say, Lord Father, you are God, you are creator, you are Lord, you are Savior, you are Redeemer. Help us to be your willing servants, obedient. Let us do the work you would have us to work, and let us rest the rest that you would have us to rest. Help us to put our mind upon you, to think upon the things that are praiseworthy, to think upon the things that are of good report, rather than being burdened down, rather than being distressed, rather than being anxious and worried and burdened, that we think upon you, see your glory, feel your glory, feel the peace that flows from you, you are our Prince of Peace, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Refuge. Praise your holy name. You are our strong tire, our refuge, our buckler, our shield. You are our good shepherd. We have no need or want of anything else. Supplies and preparations is the only icing on the cake. But you are the good cake, the good bread, the bread of life, the bread that nourishes us, and it is sufficient. We don't need the icing. We don't need the sugar. All we need is you, bread of life. Help us to be happy joyful and content with the substance of faith. Our Lord, with our Savior, with your presence, your word, with your truth, in your holy name, thy will be done. Amen. Jesus' name, so be it. Amen. You may be seated.
Let's start in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'll always have some extra paper over here, paper notes, and songbook for uh, there. Uh, yeah, pen. We always have those supplies there. And when people come in for business, feel free to you know, tell them about that. Hello, all of our brothers and sisters. Hope that you're having a good night, good day, and a good, refreshing morning. Amen. Praise Jesus. Today's topic is the importance of private worship. The importance of private worship. Amen. This is in comparison to church worship. We, we gather here every seventh day, every holy day. We worship together as a group. That's commanded in the scriptures. This is good. This is helpful. But there is also an importance of private worship all throughout the week. At times, that's not commanded as far as not having a set time on the clock and a certain date on the calendar, and that we're still worshiping him throughout the week, because he's not God just at the seventh day. He's not God just one day a week, but he's God 24-7 every day of the year. Amen. So in John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, John 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew, talking about Jesus, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, what that means is Jesus and his disciples were out there preaching, teaching, evangelizing, and people were getting saved. People were getting saved and being baptized in the ministry of Jesus. Amen. Do we really think that people, I mean, do we really think that Jesus had a ministry for three and a half years, last three and a half years of his life, and nobody got saved? That wouldn't be no good ministry. Of course people got saved under the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is talking about that, that they were making disciples and baptizing more disciples. People were getting saved through baptism. Amen. More than what John, the baptizer, had been baptizing. Verse 2, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. But here in verse 1 it says Jesus was. Making and baptizing more disciples than John. 
Now, he wasn't baptizing himself, but his disciples were. So what it is, is that Jesus was the leader. He was the leader. And his disciples, people underneath him, were also leaders, and they were baptizing in his name. Amen. They were baptizing in Jesus' name. And what that means is they was writing the check and putting Jesus' name on the check. They was writing his signature. Now, of course, I'm using an analogy. There's no literal payment here. I'm not saying the Bible is paying to get saved. I'm not saying that. I'm using an analogy. They were baptizing people, and instead of signing their own name upon the new convert, they were signing Jesus' name. They were baptizing on his behalf. Even Paul said in another verse in the Bible that, how's that go, that he wasn't called to baptize, but rather that he was having other people. I forget exactly how it says that. I wish that I had more people with me to help me out get these words perfectly of exactly how that goes. But Paul was the apostle. He was the highest leader on earth. The Bible says that he has called some as apostles and then prophets and then evangelists and then pastors and teachers and leaders. So there's a structure, there's an organization of the church. And Paul was an apostle, the highest you can go in the human structure of the church. It's what the Catholic Church would call Pope. But the word Pope is not correct, not accurate. Amen. But Paul was an apostle. Now, I'm sure that he had baptized some people. But because he was the church administrator, that he had much, 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 much responsibility. Paul had to make for sure that the church at the town of Corinth and the church at Ephesus and the church at Rome and the church at Thessalonia and, the, and all these different towns that he wrote to, he had responsibility for every one of those churches, plus the people that were right in front of him, plus his own life and his own soul and his own salvation. So he had a lot of responsibility. So he had to delegate the responsibility of baptizing. But he would have Timothy as a pastor and a person that would go baptizing. And and Jesus, going back to Jesus here now, the main leader with a lot of duty, a lot of responsibility, having the 12 disciples, even giving and delegating unto them, you baptize in my name, sign the check with my name. I give you that power. I give you that authority. 
baptize them on my behalf with my power, with my authority. Amen. We do the same today. And so that's what's occurring here. Now let's continue to read. And it says, verse 3, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he was traveling all over the place. And so he came to a city of Samaria called Shahar, near the parcel of land that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there that we read about in the Old Testament. But Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And it was about the sixth hour. Now, Jesus knew where he was resting. He knew that was Jacob's well. Amen. He knew that was Jacob's well. He knew what had occurred there thousands of years before. I can imagine him just sitting there resting and thinking about his conversations with Jacob. And the time that Jacob wrestled with him all night long and wouldn't let go of him. You know, he got what he was searching for. You can imagine, I can, these thoughts going through his mind. Thinking of Jacob's prayers, Jacob's obedience, his worship. Verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. That means that Jesus is master. If his disciples had been there, it would have been their job, their duty, and their responsibility as his servants to serve him, to draw the water for him. Amen? But his disciples had gone. So he tells this woman. And it's not it's not please, it's not maybe, it's not will you, but it's a command. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God, Jesus is in control. He is master. Amen. Verse nine, therefore the Samarian woman said to him, How is it that you being a Jew, ask me for a drink. But that word ask can be translated as demand or anything. Since I am a Samaritan woman, because the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans, this is highly unusual for a Jew to say a word to a Samaritan. They usually shunned the Samaritans. So this was very unusual. The woman was shocked. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of Theos and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him for a drink, and he would have given you living water. Not stale water, not dead water, not lukewarm water but water that gives life, water that makes a difference, water that transforms you, water that wakes you from the dead, water 
living water, quickening water, water that gives life. Verse 11, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the water is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? In other words, do you have a more special water than Jacob, who this well is named after? And Verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, this water in the well, will thirst again. It's not going to be sufficient. Now remember the point of Psalm 23 that we sung. Very first two verses is, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not want anything. I have no need of anything else. God is sufficient. That's all I need. And then it says that he shall make us to lie down in green pastures or something. He is our shepherd. He enters us into rest, life, all these things. But this water was not sufficient in the well. This was just normal water for your flesh. Hey, and that's good, that's fine and good. But our flesh is only temporary, and you're going to thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water, verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him, inside of him, a well of water springing up to eternal life. This is a a genuinely never-ending spring of water within. Remember in chapter 7, at the Feast of Tabernacles, he stood and he said, If any man would thirst, let him come unto me and drink, for in his belly will flow living waters. Amen. There is the theme of water in the book of John, over and over and over over again. Sometime or another, I encourage you to read the book of John and underline and keep track of every place where it's talking about anything dealing with water. Baptism, water of life, a whale, a river, a lake, a pond, anything. And see the theme of water in the book of John. Verse 15, the woman says to him, Sir, give me this water. Amen. So that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw anymore. You know, I come here all the time. I have to travel so many miles. My feet are sore. I'm dealing with the, the sun in the desert. I'm dealing with the sand in my feet, the sand in my ears, the sand in my hair, the sand in my eyes. She doesn't say all this. But you put the but put yourself in her shoes. Amen. Put yourself in her shoes. And yes, you'll be saying all all of that that I just said. And she's like, Yeah, 
I, I want this so I don't have to come here and labor to go through this hard work, dry, hot desert anymore. Verse 16, he said to her, go and call your husband and come. Amen. How did he know she was married? Amen. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband, that you, you have had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. That's because even though that she had been with these several men in her lifetime, and Jesus knew exactly how many men she had been with, that the man that she was with now was not in the eyes of God her husband. Because in the eyes of God, a woman is still married to the first man that she had sex with unless that covenant had been broken for a righteous reason. But if that covenant, that marriage, that relationship was broken for a wrong reason, then she is still tied to him. And evidently, one of her former husbands was still tied to her in the eyes of God. Therefore, the man that she was with at that moment was not in the eyes of God, her husband. And she knew that and admitted that, that, or she maybe might have been trying to lie about it, but that the lie was the truth. Or maybe she was being truthful. We don't know exactly which way. But Jesus knew. Jesus knew all the details of her situation. This proves that he's God as well. Amen. And it says here, in verse 18, in verse 19, verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, she didn't say, you're God. She called him a prophet. But we know that the knowledge was because he was God. She still did not understand what he was saying. Yet, yet. She still didn't understand what she was really saying. She was taking all of this physically. Hey, give me this water so I don't have to labor, so I don't have to thread through the desert. She was still taking all this very little, not spiritually minded, not living in full surrender to God, carnally, physically minded. And so, that type of person would say that Jesus is only a prophet because he's carnally minded. In verse 20, our fathers, this woman continues to speak, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem, you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So she's like, our forefathers worshipped in this mountain, but the Jews say you've got to worship in Jerusalem. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Not only has he told her her past and her present, 
but now even her future, that a time is coming that she's not going to worship him anywhere, mountain or Jerusalem. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, Jesus said, for salvation is from the Jews. That doesn't mean salvation is limited to the Jews. You've got to read the whole Bible. But there's another verse that says that salvation was of the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So it started with the Jews because God chose to start somewhere and with the other Hebrews as well. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks, I'd like for you to underline the word seeks, to be his worshipers. The Father is literally seeking, looking for people to worship him. He is like, who will worship him in spirit and in truth? Because people are worshiping everything else. They're worshiping football, Obama, communism, Nazism, Judaism, thisism and thatism and that religion and, and everything else, and statues and animals and angels and planets. They're worshiping everything but God. And Jesus is looking for who we worship the true God. Him, he is God. But he doesn't want just any worship. He doesn't want dirty, defiled worship. He doesn't want you to worship him the same way the Hebrews worship their false gods. He doesn't want that kind of dirty, filthy worship. He wants true worship. He wants true followers, not fake followers. He is seeking and looking upon the earth. Who? Who will worship the one true God and be true about it? And not just in the truth, dealing with doctrine, not just with head knowledge, not just with correct doctrine, but with heart and soul and mind not just with outward appearance or books, but with inwardness, trueness, in the spirit, in the soul, in the heart. Amen. Jesus said that people worship him with their lips, but their heart is far from him. So he requires both true doctrine and to worship him in spirit. Amen. In spirit means not only from the heart, but also with emotion. Amen. To worship him with emotion, because without emotion, worship is not worship. Worship is emotional. Worship is the outpouring of your feelings and of your emotions. To God. It is you bowing at his feet 
in sincere want of worshiping him. It is not thou must worship, but it is thou wants to worship. It is a feeling. It is a feeling. Amen. And it is with your heart. And it is also a spiritual manifestation of you and him meeting together, coming together. And I'm going to give you some scriptures about this, about him coming unto us and we coming into him, that we're meeting halfway, that we're coming together. Worship is intimacy. Worship is intimacy. And worship that is not intimate is not worship. Amen. If a person raises their hands and does not mean it, it is in vain. If we sing a song and not mean it, it is in vain. If we say the words or go through the actions or keep the seventh day or keep the holy days and not mean it, then it's all in vain. You can be baptized, you can keep the seventh day, you can keep the holy days, you can keep all the do's and the don'ts. You can keep the perfect law, you can be completely 100% surrendered in law and still not make it in the first resurrection. And that is because your heart, even if you go through all the outward manifestations, outward appearance, your heart inside still may not be right because you may just have the head knowledge that's telling you you got to do this and not do this. But that's only truth. That's only doctrine. What about spirit? What about heart? What about voluntary, willing love? Amen? What about love? And what about a love that's not commanded? What about a love that just has true gratitude, true heartfelt emotion that we love him back? He loved us first while we were still yet sinners, but that we have true gratitude that he accepted us, he saved us, he gave us another chance, he embraced us, knowing our past, knowing our sins, knowing our wicked ways, our wicked heart, and he still accepted us the first moment that we said, that we said, I do. Now, he expects us to continue to grow. Amen. But he is merciful. Amen. Very merciful. So let's continue to read just a little bit more here. In verse 24, Theos is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Amen. Now notice the connection that he is spirit, and we must worship him in spirit. So if he is spirit, we must worship him in spirit, and we must worship him in a manner that is more than outward appearance and worship him 
with our soul, with our spirit, spirit meeting spirit, amen, with sincerity and heartfelt truth, emotion, and love, a spirit combining with another spirit is enemies. And you know that in the flesh, a man and woman is married when they very first have sex. Now, we're going to be married to Jesus Christ. The entire church is his bride. And we are going into heaven for the marriage supper. So I had a man one time say to me, oh, this is amazing. We're going to have sex with Jesus (laughs) because we're going to be married with him. Okay. You know, I hope you know better than that. He was like this woman at the well, still thinking carnally, physically. Of course, we are not ever, ever, ever going to have sex with Jesus. But we're going to be married to him. So how do we get married without sex? Through intimacy. Through private Animus. I mean, you don't just have sex right in front of the public, right? Private intimacy, in the privacy of your bedroom, in the privacy of your tent, in the privacy of your home, in the privacy of your car, that we are coming into love, true love, and we actually mean it. When we say, I do. That we actually mean it. When we say, Lord, be my God, be my Lord, be my Savior, save me, deliver me, give me my sins, I surrender, I'm going to live for you. When we say all of this, and it's sincere and true, and we follow through with that baptism, we do get wet, we do get sloppy, we do get messy. And He gives us his seed, his sperm, into us. And we are the woman. And he is the man. And in that wet moment that he puts his seed, his spirit, his life, his water of living water into us at baptism, sometimes before baptism, sometimes sometime later after baptism. We have biblical examples for each one of these things. We are married to him now. But we are going there to finalize it even more so. And at that moment that we are resurrected and turned to spirit, and shed this snake skin, once we shed this flesh, 
and our spirit and his spirit are merged together even more than what he is now. And there is no separation between us. Our body is like a curtain, a veil in the temple, separating the Holy of Holies, separating the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat from the rest of the temple. Our body is like a veil that needs to be rent into. Amen. And once this body is rent into, it would not be a negative thing. We should not fear that day of death. We should not fear the day of the demise of this flesh. But look forward to it instead. I have heard many people tell uh, testimonies in my life of knowing their parents, their dad, their mom, their grandfather, their grandmother, or somebody they knew, that on their deathbed, they were shouting and praising God. And that's the way that if I die before Jesus comes, that is the way I want to go out. Amen. Praising God with my last breath. Not feeling sorry for myself not thinking of negative, sad things, but thinking upon the one who created me, who is receiving my soul, who is receiving my spirit back into himself. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And that is a true statement that Paul wrote. But the Lord is not limited to heaven or a throne but he is in all places at all times. The Bible says he is even in the grave. Amen. We've got to get rid of fleshly thinking. Amen. Think spiritually. And if you want to understand the scriptures and you want to understand the voice of God, if you want to hear the voice of God, if you want to understand the voice of God, if you want to recognize the voice of God, if you want to walk in the spirit of God, then you have to become spirit. For the spiritual man understands those of the spirit. The physical, carnal, natural man understands the things of the flesh. A carnal man understands sports and knows the the name of every man on the football team, and when he dies, that knowledge dies with him, and it is in vain and useless. But a spiritual man, when you die, it goes with you. Amen. And a spiritual man knows the things of the spirit, the Bible says. Amen. When you walk in the spirit, you can feel the presence of God. Amen. And we're talking about worship today. And when you enter worship, The goal is to feel the presence of God. That when you lift your hands, you're hoping for electricity. When you lift your hands, you're hoping that God will see you anchor back and flow into your hands, into your mind, into your heart, into your belly, and that living water should come up out of your mouth and start speaking in tongues, if that be his will or that we will start shouting uncontrollably, if that be his will, or even 
if that be our emotion, then that is perfectly fine. We should have feeling. We should feel his presence, want his presence, seek his presence, invite his presence, and invite him in to our congregation, invite him in here to preach. We should invite him into our lives, our heart, our minds, our household, in every area of our lives. We should seek him, ask him, beg him to come in to our services and our lives 24-7, every morning. Lord, here I am. First thing in the morning, before we answer the phone, before we check the news, before we open the door, before we check the email, Lord, here I am to worship you. Thank you for my sleep. Thank you that I was up all night praying. Thank you that I'm in pain so that this draws me to more prayer, to more seeking for you. Thank you that this bill is paid. Thank you for these groceries yesterday. Thank you for this email. Thank you for that person. Thank you for this victory. Thank you for this answered prayer. Thank you for this answer. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. We worship you. Private prayer. I worship you. Amen. It should not be by command, but it should be by spirit. It should be by love. It should be like, I want this. I want to talk to you. I want to hear back. Spend that time every morning, first thing. Who do you wake with? Who do you wake up with? Is the bridegroom. Have that intimacy first thing in the morning. Have that intimacy first thing in the morning, the last thing at night. What does the bridegroom do in a bride every morning, every night? If it's a healthy relationship, intimacy. We should seek and want and have that intimacy every morning and every night and even in the afternoon with God. Amen. And it should not be a premature ejaculation. It should not be a 30-second thing, a one-minute thing. It should be 10, 20, 30 minutes often. R. Can you pray for R? Have you ever done that? Have you ever tried that? One of the churches I used to go to a long time ago, I don't, I can't remember if it was every week or once a month or what it was. I think it was every week. But one day a week, those that was devoted enough to God. We would gather in the sanctuary of that church. We would gather at that church, I think every Thursday night or whatever it was, every Tuesday night or whatever, and dedicate ourselves to that one hour of prayer in the sanctuary every week. And that's what we call a group activity, a corporative worship, a group commitment. 
but it was still individually because most of the church was not there. Hey, everybody was invited, but who would get down on their knees for a whole hour every week? Almost no one. There was very few of us there. But even if a leader does not call for such a thing, we voluntarily should be doing these things. We need to be praying, as the Bible says, unceasing. Meaning we pray before we go in the store, as we're in the store, Father, should I get this? And I afford this, thinking about the future, getting to survival mode, getting the cheapest that we can, making wise decisions, praying about those decisions. I've seen miracles, real and amazing and powerful miracles I have seen just because I prayed before I went to the school. Amen. Coming out of the story, Thanksgiving, for everything that we got. Most people come out of the story, they throw it in their car, and they never think about it ever again. No thank you. No gratitude. No love for God. Taking everything for granted. But we need to come back out of that story with uh, a smile on our face and being so very thankful. There are so many people in this world that would literally kill for everything we just came out of that store for. We just came out of that store with what somebody in Nigeria would spend an entire year's wages for. How blessed are we and we're not thankful. We take everything for granted. We're spoiled, rich brats. Ever American. Amen. We need to worship God, thinking about God unceasing. God should be with us ever present. He is not with us only during services, He is living with us. He is the first thing we see in the morning, the last thing we see at night. Amen. And in between, he is still with us. He is living inside of us. And he is seeking a people who will pay attention to him, who acknowledge his presence. Amen. He doesn't want Saturday statements or Saturday commands. What he wants is 24-7 relationships. He is looking for love. Amen. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. Meaning, I am he. I am the Messiah. I am the one that has become to declare all things, teach you all things. 
all things. There is nothing that he cannot teach us. If we ask, if we seek, if we want it, if we ask how many stars in heaven there is, and if he wants to answer that question, then it is possible, amen, that he could teach us all things. Let's go to the book of Luke now. Luke chapter 10, over here to the left, a few pages. Luke 10, verse 38. Luke 10, verse 38. Page 75. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She said, Come in. She invited him in. I want you to come into my house. We need to do that, and we need to be asking more. Come more, fill me up and overflowing. I want to shout. I want to speak in tongues. I want to prophesy. I want to speak the word of God. Speak to me. I am your willing vessel. Use me. Send me. Say go and I will go. Amen. She said, come in to my home, Lord. Amen. Verse 39, she had a sister called Mary who was seated at the Lord's seat, listening to his word. But Martha, the one who invited him in, was distracted with all of her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister Mary has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her, then tell her to help me. So the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. The only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. I am not going to tell her to leave my sheep, to leave worshiping me, to stop worshiping me, to help you cut carrots. Amen. Now, of course, there was a duty, a responsibility to serve Jesus, to give him the water, right? We said that earlier, he was the master, it was the people's duty, the disciples, the women, the men, everybody was their duty to attend to him. Martha was doing that. She was doing what she was supposed to do. But she had her own attitude about it, because instead of being happy about what she was doing, I mean, she could have been thinking the whole time, I am cutting the carrots for God. I am fixing the salad for the Messiah. I am fixing the soup, the lasagna, the fish for my Lord and my Savior. She should have been doing all those chores with a smile in her heart. 
Notice I didn't say a smile on her face. Even the devil can smile. I've seen the devil smile more times than I have the church. Amen. Bad truth. Truth. She needed the smile in her heart. And that smile in her heart was not there. But rather, she was looking upon others. Amen. What they were doing. When we come to church, we don't need to be looking at what is she doing, what is he doing. A lot of people come to church paying attention to everybody else, watching somebody else pick their nose, watching somebody else clean their feet, whatever. And these things cannot be done in church either, of course. We have to be careful that we're not being a distraction to other people. Amen? When we come to church, we've got to be careful that we're not being the distraction causing other people to listen to us, pay attention to us. In other words, we need to have our cell phones off so that we're not beeping and chirping and singing through electronic music. Amen. And children need to behave. And children should be properly taught and disciplined in their own homes and in the grocery store to where when they come to church, they are already taught and trained. You sit in the chair and you be quiet and you do not get out of the chair and you do not, you're not in the floor playing with toys. You're not running around in circles, and you're not crying, and you're not doing this, and you're not doing what you're doing as a child. I don't care if you're one year old or 16 years old. You are sitting in your chair. You are listening. You are paying attention. You are sitting still. People say, come on, Pastor Kimball, one year old. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because People these days, they think children cannot behave. It's impossible. And that is a lie of the devil. Absolutely, children can be taught to sit still and behave at any age. Amen. That we come together to learn, to hear the word of God. We're coming into a holy sanctified, set apart, time and location. And our attention and our focus is on the Lord. And we should not be paying attention to others, and neither should we be a distraction to others. Mary was looking around, and she should have been worshiping. Amen. She should have been worshiping. So, Another lesson that we need to take from this is let's not be distracted by everyday routine. Let's not be distracted by I've got to get this done and that done. Let's take the time and set the priority to worship. Amen. Let's take the time. If we plan it, if we plan it ahead of time and say, you know what, I know 
that I need this amount of time in the morning for prayer. Get up early enough to do that. And I need this amount of time in the afternoon. And I need this amount of time before bed. And make plans to do that to where there's not distractions, not anything that's getting in our way, no roadblocks to our worship and our prayer. And worship is lifting your hands. That's what it is. And worship is prayer. That is what it is. Amen. And people would say, well, people worship in different ways, and that's true. But sooner or later, you need to lift your hands. If you go throughout life and you never lift your hands in church, and you never lift your hands in prayer, and you never lift your hands in private worship nor group worship, it is a symptom of a disease, a spiritual, mental, emotional disease. It could be pride. It could be fear of what other people think when they see you raise your hand. It can be different things, but it is a spiritual, mental, or emotional disease, a hindrance. We need to be free. It's all right to worship the Lord. We have come here together to worship the Lord. It's all right to worship the Lord, that song said. doesn't matter who might be standing near, the, the song says. Worship should be free and unhindered. Amen. We should not be hindered by pride or fear. And even if my shoulder is killing me, even if my arms are killing me, even if I'm tired and exhausted, there has been times in the past where my arms was killing me and I still lifted my arms in worship. I remember a woman out of church years ago that she gave her testimony how God had brought her back from near death and from sickness and disease. And she was so extremely grateful. True, deep, intense gratitude for salvation and healing. That she said that if she becomes sick and she is extremely sick and exhausted and tired and in pain, She's still going to come to church and she is still going to worship. And if need be, just prop her up in a back corner somewhere that she is going to be there and she is going to worship. And that is the attitude that we need and every one of us needs. Amen. There should be no question whether or not we're having services. I may be sick, I may have the flu. I may be throwing up, I may be sneezing, I may be hoarse, my throat may be sore, my legs may be fatigued, I may be in a wheelchair, I may be blind, I don't care what the situation is, we will never cancel services. If I have to be preaching in bed, 
and we will preach in bed. If I have to preach from the hospital room, I will preach from the hospital room. It is not the chat room. It is not like just chatting. This is worship, and we will do it, and we will be committed. Amen. And we should look forward to it and do it voluntarily. I don't care if it's command or not. I'm going to worship. Amen. Praise the Lord. And we will not let any hindrance or distraction. Amen. Martha was distracted. Let's not get distracted by worldly concerns, worldly uh, activities. Take the time to worship God. Now, according to your situation, as far as private worship, sometimes in your situation, you may need to go to the bathroom or you may need to go into a car or outside or drive down the street to go to a different location to where you can have even more worship. Because, say, if if there's a, a husband and a wife and three kids, you might can worship, but sometimes you need privacy. Sometimes you just want to let loose and need to let loose and should let loose in your worship. Worship should not be hindered. It really doesn't matter if somebody hears you pray. It really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter if somebody hears you crying out to God, shouting, praising, worshiping, begging, asking, seeking, whatever, whatever emotion, whatever situation in that moment of worship. Do not be fearful. Do not be ashamed. Do not be shy. Do not be hindered. Even if there's a million people in the house. But there are also times that you can go to your closet, that you can go to your special room, that you can go sit out in the car, that you can go to the public park or into the woods or into a hiking situation or a special weekend camping for prophecy, and there's nothing wrong with those things either. But we need to take time to worship in that. And we have a lot of distractions in this life. We have a lot of burdens. We have a lot of worry. We have a lot of stress. And at your worst moment, the best thing you can do is to worship. When you're tempted to sin, the best thing you can do is start worshiping. When the devil comes knocking on your door, the best thing you can do is start worshiping. When you get an evil phone call, the best thing you can do is start worshiping. You get an evil email, best thing you can do is start worshiping. You get a diagnosis of sickness, best thing you can do is start worshiping. You have a trial, you have a tribulation, best thing you can do is start worshiping. And no matter what the situation is, when you worship God, he will come to you. When you come to him, he's not going to ignore you. He is going to come to you. He is going to hug you. He is going to caress you. He is going to love on you. Amen. Amen. And 
so many times that I have come to the Lord in desperation, and when I come to Him, all those problems, all that anxiety, all that worry just left me. And I was left with an overflowing, intense presence of peace. Worship. Cutting our minds on Him. Our attention, our heart toward Him washes away our sins, our worries, and our anxieties. I've seen it work a million times. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, verse 25. Matthew 6, verse 25. For this reason, I say to you, do not be overly anxious about your life, what you would eat or what you would drink, nor for your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Now, the King James translates this wrong. It says, do not take a thought. And that's wrong. I mean, if, if the scripture or a book or a preacher is telling you, don't think at all about food or clothing or your body, that's foolish. That's being not responsible. You've got to take thought. You've got to work. You've got to plan. You've got to budget. You've got to think about things. But it says, when it's translated correctly, do not be overly anxious. Don't be burdened by these things. Don't let it stress you out, is what he is teaching. We've got to plan. We've got to think about these things. That's being responsible adults. But we are not to let these things stress us out. And he was talking about every day. But we can apply this also for preparing for the great tribulation. Amen. We can apply this for that as well. That's not the context because he's talking about everyday living. But when we think of preparing for the tribulation, isn't that our everyday living now in our situation? In our situation, that is our everyday living now. There's not a day that goes by I don't think about the tribulation and preparing for the tribulation. I think that's probably true with probably every one of you, that there's not a day that goes by that we're not thinking about what's going to happen two or three months from now. Amen. And there's nothing wrong with that. We've got to think, we've got to plan, we've got to pray about these things, fast about these things, but we are not to be overly anxious about these things. Don't get distracted. God is love. God is life. God is peace. God is not to be a burden to us. Amen. He came to give us life and life more abundantly. 
Amen. Philippians 4 says, Think upon the positive things, things that are praiseworthy, the things that are of a good report. Have your mind on these things, Philippians 4 says. So even though we check the newsletter, even though we watch what's going on with Turkey and Syria, Russia and China, and America and Korea and everybody, we're not putting our head in the sand. We're not burying our head in the sand. We're not ignoring the reality of life. We're not ignoring the tribulation to come. But we need to face this tribulation knowing that we are God's people. We are God's family, we are God's church, we are God's bride, and it's going to be okay. It is. It is going to be okay. Amen? It's going to be okay. Look at verse 26. Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being wearied, can add an hour to his life? But rather, actually, hours are taken away from us, right? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow, that they do not toil, nor do they spin. In other words, the flowers, the lilies, the flowers out in the field, they are not being burdened. They're living happy. Every one of those flyers out in the field has a smile in their heart. Verse 29, Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory and all of his riches, he was not himself clothed like one of these flyers in the field. Amen. But if Theos so close the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow will be thrown in the furnace, meaning after the hundred years, when the lake of fire comes, all these beautiful flowers, trees, and grass, hey, that's just physical things. They're going to be all burned up on these days. But, amen. Says not much more. Will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Little faith is a bad thing. Remember that the traditional doctrine that says that we should have faith as small as a mustard seed is a false doctrine. That's a false doctrine. Bible does not say, with the correct translation, with the correct translation, the Bible does not say that you should have faith as small as a mustard seed. But rather, you should have faith as a mustard seed. It says nothing about it being small. Because it may start small, but it gets big, the Bible says, that it grows into a mighty tree wherein the birds will make a home. We need the kind of faith that grows big. That is what God wants. God does not want little faith in us. He wants big faith in us. Amen. And right here, he condemns you for having only little faith. And there are other verses where he also condemns people for having only little faith. 
So people need to stop this lie that a little faith is enough. A little faith is not enough because we're in a big war and we need big faith. Amen? Little faith will kill you in a big war. Amen. We need big faith for big trials and big tribulations. Big faith, lots of faith in God. Little faith in God ain't going to get you anywhere. We need lots of faith in God. We should not be lacking in that. We should not have little faith. Little faith is lacking. We need to be full of faith. We need to know and believe, not just head knowledge. We need a heartfelt belief. We need spirit, soul, mind, heart, faith, sincere, deep spiritual belief. Not head knowledge, but belief that Jesus loves us, cures for us, clothes us, feeds us, and will take care of us. Amen. That is not a promise that you would never go hungry at all. Do not misinterpret this verse. It's not a promise that you would never go hungry or that you would never be naked because Paul was an apostle of the church. And he said he went naked and hungry. not a promise that you won't suffer. It's not a promise that you won't die. It's not a promise you won't be murdered. It's not a promise you won't be persecuted and hated and despised by man because we know he will be. But it is a promise that sooner or later God will come knocking on our door even as he did come knocking on Martha's door other people's door in the book of Revelation said that he would knock on our door and that he wants to come in with us if we will answer if we will open the door to him he will come in with us and have supper with us he will sup with us meaning relationship and intimacy with us this is a promise that we should not be burdened. We should not be over-anxious because sooner or later, God is going to answer. God is going to provide. We may go through the valley of death. We may go through the valley of trials and tribulations and nakedness and hungriness. But even though trials and tribulations and the darkness may last for a night, joy cometh in the morning, that there is going to be a new day that there is going to be a kingdom that will come out of heaven, that Jesus is coming back for you and me, that Jesus is coming back not only for the church, but for you individually. Amen. That's why we don't need just group worship, but individual worship. Amen. He's not going to call uh, the church up to him as only a group but rather individually. Amen. 
the, the judgment will be on each individual about whether or not you are caught up rather than as a group. We should not assume that just because we're a member of a group, a member of a church, or a member of a congregation, that every person in that congregation will be called up. And we should not assume that just because we're part of a group or a congregation that we will be protected by God just because one or two or three or four or five other people will be protected by God doesn't mean we will be protected by God. Or just because they're going into the wilderness that we will go into the wilderness. Or just because they will survive all the way to the day of the Lord that we would. Every person is an individual. And every person is judged separately. And every person has their calling, their ordaining, and so forth. And we're all each individually responsible for ourselves and need to hear from God. Amen. We should not depend on coming into on, we should not depend on coming into the kingdom by our mother's skirt tails or our dad's skirt tail or our pastor's skirt tail or our husband's or our wife's skirt tail. And what I mean by that, if you can imagine a small child holding on to the bottom of the skirt of his mom or her mom. The mom is walking into the kingdom, entering into the gates of heaven, and the small child is holding on to the skirt, on to the dress, on to the shirt, on to the belt of the parents. We should not think that we're going to make it into heaven by writing the blessings or the calling or the provision of the husband or the wife or the pastor or the parents. Each one of us will be judged individually, not for what our husband did or our pastor did, but what we have done and not done and where our heart is. Amen. Same thing about the fleeing, same thing about protection. And even if we have all of our heart right, still does not guarantee us that we're going to survive. There is no promise that we're going to survive the tribulation unless God has promised us that individually. If God has promised us protection or safety individually, directly to you, then God has spoken to you individually that God will preserve you and protect you. Amen. But there is no promise to the entire church that the entire church will be protected because the Bible talks about many people being beheaded, true saints being beheaded, people who refuse to take the mark of the beast, people who refuse to worship Assad, people who refuse to bow to the devil, people that are committed to Jesus will be killed in the tribulation. But if we come into that situation, if that is our allotment, if that is our ordaining, if that is our calling, if that is what we are chosen for, then accept it with joy. 
because it is a high honor to die for the Lord. It is a high honor to be chosen to represent him as a sacrifice, as a person that is devoted, even when faced with death, that we will not surrender to the enemy. This is a high calling, honorable. It is an honor calling to be chosen to die for the Lord. But it is also an honor, an honor, just as much as an honor, to be chosen to be protected. If God chooses to protect me, or rather God chooses to have me to die for him, Whichever, neither one of them is worse or better than the other. They are both God's choice. And whatever God chooses for us, whether it's famine, death, persecution, valley or mountain, sunshine or rain, good times or bad times, praise God in the midnight eye. Remember in the Bible, in the book of Acts, that Paul and Silas was thrown into prison for preaching the name of Jesus. These were innocent men that had done nothing wrong and thrown in jail only for doing what we're supposed to do, for doing right. But they were not crying. They were not miserable. They were not distressed. They were not overly anxious. But at the midnight hour, and the darkness of the night with chains around their ankles. They were singing praises to God. They put their minds on the Lord, and an earthquake came. Jesus sent an earthquake so powerful that it broke the chains, and they were free. And yet, these men had so much honor that they would not flee the jail. God broke the chains off their bodies. They could have ran out and escaped. But these men were so full of honor that they accepted that we are to obey our kings, our governors, the police, the military. We are to obey these people. We are to submit ourselves to the authorities. And they saved. And so when the jailer came and at first thought that they had escaped, he didn't see them at first, he was going to kill himself knowing that once his boss found out they escaped, which they did, but when he first did not see them and, of course, naturally thought that they had escaped, he's like, I'm about to kill myself right here in this moment because my boss is going to kill me for letting these people escape. And Paul saw him and said, no, no, stop. Don't do this because we are still here. The man was so amazed that they had not fled, that they had that much honor and even stopped him from killing himself. And they could have said, oh, let him do it. They could have said, we are in here for doing nothing. Let him kill himself. And then we'll escape. But no. They had love and they had honor and they had dignity. And they said, don't kill yourself. We are here. And that man was so amazed and overcome 
by all these good things that he got saved that night, gave his heart to the Lord, made that decision, and Paul went and baptized him and the entire man's family that very night or the next morning. And all those people got saved, that man and his family. Why? Because Paul and Silas chose to praise God when they could have been crying and moaning and feeling sorry for themselves. We need to praise God, worship God. And they were not in a church building. They were in a prison cell. Do we need to be worshiping God every day, even in the midnight hour, even in our worst moment? The best thing you can do in your worst moment is to praise God. Because when you praise him, he will come into that jail cell. He will come into that hospital room. He will come into that sanctuary. He will come into that car. He will come into that room, wherever you are, and join with you, and miracles will happen. Worries will flee away. Amen. Praise the Lord. Look at, jump down all the way down to verse 34, or verse 33, verse 33, but seek first, not second, not third, not last, but seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. And all these things, the food and the clothing, the, the supplies, the preparations, all these things will be added to you. It doesn't say quickly. It doesn't say immediately. There will be times of distress, nakedness, and famine, and hunger. Even Jesus had no place to lay his head and was hungry, it says, on the seventh day. And they were walking through the field of grain and pick the grain to eat. Jesus got hungry. There are good times and there are bad times for every one of us, regardless of how much obedience we have. But sooner or later, that grain will be provided. Sooner or later, he will hear our prayers. Sooner or later, there will be salvation and joy in the morning. So put first the kingdom and don't be overly anxious and worried about everything else in the tears of life. Put your heart and your mind on the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the victory, the victory. Put your mind on the finish line, the victory. Jesus, his kingdom, his goodness, the good thing. Verse 34, so do not worry as far as being over-anxious about tomorrow. But tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not be overburdened, over-anxious about the future. Amen. Let's go to the book of Romans 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, page 162. Romans 12, verse 1. Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of Dios, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to Dios, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, this is not just talking about in the midst of a congregation, but rather it's talking about 24-7. 
presented your bodies as living and holy sacrifice. Now that means several different things. It means being willing to die for him if called upon to, but not just that, more than that. That's really only a secondary meaning, secondary meaning. The primary main meaning of this is to live, not to die, but to live for him as a living sacrifice every day that we have surrendered our life to him. We have surrendered our first 10% to him. We have surrendered our first 10, 20, 30 minutes of a day to him. We have surrendered our marriages, our lives, our homes, our land, our cars, our military service. We have surrendered to him and we are presenting our life on a platter to him and we're saying, take me, Lord. I am yours. Do with me what you want to do. You told, you tell me what to do. I would do it. I would not go to the left or to the right, but I would stay in that center line of exactly what you tell me to do. I would not go my way, my will, but I would do your way, your will. We need to do this in all things. We need to examine our actions, our hearts, our priorities, our minds, our actions, our activities, and say, Lord, am I too far to the left? Am I too far to the right? Am I outside your will? Am I doing what you don't want me to do? Or am I on the right track on this particular thing and this other thing and this other thing? We need to go through our house even and everything that's on the wall and everything on the table and everything in the closet, laying hands on each item one at a time. Lord, is this acceptable? Should I keep this? Should I throw it away? What about this item? What about this thing in the closet? What about this thing in the attic? What about this thing under the bed? What about this thing in the car? What about this thing in the luggage? What about this thing on the wall? What about this book? What about this tape? What about this CD? Lord, is this acceptable to have? I am a living sacrifice. Everything is yours. I surrender all. But people have this other attitude rather than doing that. People have the attitude of, Father, I surrender all except my first 10%. I surrender all except my horror movies. I surrender all except my pornography. I surrender all except my sports and all my time and all my attention that I put on the sports. You can't have that because I ain't got time for you, Lord. I got to put sports first. I got to put Christmas first, Easter first. I got to put husband first, wife first, this first, that first, job first, whatever the situation is. And yet people are saying, I surrender all. And they're not surrendering all. (laughs) How much is left? You give God your last, not your first. Amen. That's what people are doing. People are giving God their last, what's left over after they have already chosen everything they're going to hold on to and give God their last. And that ought not be so. Amen. We should be a living sacrifice 24-7. 
And it says here that this is our spiritual service of worship. You can worship by prayer. You can worship by laying, I mean, lifting up your hands. You can worship through tears. You can worship through song. But you can also worship through surrendering everything to him. That is a service of worship. Amen. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, to the way it looks and acts and sounds and thinks, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is the real theos is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If we're going by our carnal mind, our old mind, our old ways, our real the old ways, the old thoughts, then we're not going to be in the perfect, good, and acceptable will, perfect center of God's will. Because we're going our old way. We have to allow our mind to be surrendered to God. Let him renew it, refresh it, change it, transform it. Because once we truly get saved, we no longer think the way we used to be. We no longer view things the way that we used to view things. We have new eyes, new ears, new heart. He has changed us. The old man is gone, the new man has come. Amen? It's a total transformation. Total. If people would surrender 100% and stop holding back. Amen? If we would stop holding back, then he would change us 100%. And we would no longer like the same music, no longer like the same TV shows, same movies, same magazines, same uh, activities, we will be totally changed. And it comes immediately upon receiving his Holy Ghost. It does. But it continues, and it gets stronger and stronger and stronger that he'll continue to transform us day by day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, until we are ready to be turned to spirit. And if we're not ready by the first resurrection, regardless of what commandments we have and did not keep, if we are not totally transformed, if we are not totally transformed and completed into what he wants us to become, then we will have to go to second resurrection, which is also good. It is not a punishment to go to second resurrection. Second resurrection is not punishment. It's more time. It's grace. It's mercy. It's love. It is a good thing, not a bad thing. Of course, we want to finish the race in first place. Paul said that who doesn't want first prize? We would want to make it in the first resurrection. We would strive for that. We would train for that. And Paul did use the analogy of the Olympics, even though he didn't use the word Olympics. But everybody recognizes, pastors, denominations, churches, religions, everybody recognizes that Paul and other people in the Bible did use the analogy of the Olympics. That was what was in his mind, of running a race. It was a big, huge thing in the mindset and civilization of that day and time. 
And even though the Olympics is evil, it is evil. The Olympics is evil. The Olympics origin was full of homosexuality and origins and or orgies, sexual orgies, homosexuality, and other evil and evil pagan worship and everything else. Everything about the Olympics is total evil. Evil, 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 evil. But just like the NFL today, it's nothing but evil, evil, evil. NFL is evil to the core. But it is what is on people's minds. And so it's because it is something that is on the forefront of our society that God can even speak through that. If we're not reading the Bible, but we're watching football, then he will speak to us through the football. If we're not reading the Bible, but we're watching the Olympics, and we're trying to serve him, but we're still holding on to the Olympics, then he will speak to us through the Olympics. He will bring something on while you're watching the Olympics, and will, and will say a word to you. He will speak through a donkey. Read the Bible. It's in there. He will speak through an animal, a beast, a donkey. He would speak through anything. And so Paul used the Olympics, even though he didn't say Olympics. That was what in his mind. And he said, let's run the race that we would win first prize. Amen. And using analogies that people could understand, even as I have done this day with sexual things and of the flesh. Even Paul did that. Even Paul used the example of a man and woman relationship in picture of the church and of Christ Jesus. Amen. People think I preach pretty strangely, but I actually preach the same way Paul preached. Amen. So, here in Romans 12, we need to allow God to transform our mind. But if we really want total transformation, in order to be turned to spirit, think in spirit, walk in spirit, pray in spirit, make decisions in spirit, then we've got to fully surrender and not hold anything back from God. Be a living sacrifice. And you don't just sacrifice just part of yourself, but all of yourself. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4. Back before James, page 218 in the black and white edition, Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, that any of you may seem to have come short of it. So in other words, we need to try to enter 100% into his rest, not come short of it. Now, this has several meanings. If you look at all of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, there is a very strong context for keeping the seventh day. 
and that we must make for sure, do everything possible to keep the seventh day, to not let hindrance, hindrance get in our way, to not let anything get in our way of keeping the seventh day. We must keep that day. But even if, if we, even if it means that we get fired, we need to keep the seventh day. Amen. And not let anything prevent us from doing that. That is the day of rest. That is the appointed day of worship and fellowship and gathering. Amen. As a congregation. Even if it's online. Amen. But it also means that God is our Prince of Peace, that Jesus is our Prince of Peace, and that we need to enter into him 100%. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Amen. And that we need to enter him, we need to enter into him so much and ultimately and totally 100% enter into his presence, his spirit, to where we can have peace and rest, to where we're not burdened, to where we're not over-anxious. We need to find that place, that relationship, that intimacy, to where we feel like that we are being cuddled in bed, hugged and cuddled by our protective, strong husband, Jesus Christ. We need to feel that love, that presence, that protection, that rest, that security, that peace of mind that he is guarding us and holding us. We need to enter that rest. Amen. Verse 2, for indeed, we have had good news preached. Oh, amen. We have had good news. Let's not faint. Amen. We have had good news preached to us, even as they also talk about the people that crossed the Red Sea. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united with faith by those who heard. So we have to take the doctrines, the teachings, the sermons, the good news preached to us, and unite it, combine it with faith, meaning you accept that word. When we come to services or listen to services or read the Bible, we need to accept that word. Grab onto it, hold onto it, and don't let go. Grab onto it, unite it by faith, and believe in that word, believe in that scripture, believe in God's protection. Amen. But they, they didn't believe. Moses and God and Aaron said such and such, and the people are like, we're going to be in a hot desert. But where would the caves be? Where would the tree be? Where would the water be? Where would the food be? We're going to be in the hot desert. Are we doing that now? We need to believe. Verse 3. 
For we who have believed can have that rest. We don't need to be over-anxious about the future. We need to prepare. We have been instructed to prepare. We have been instructed to save supplies. We need to be doing that. But we need to enter into rest. Because we can have a million supplies. But if we don't enter into rest, those supplies are going to get broken. God will break. God will break the supplies. God will have the supplies stolen from us, taken from us, rotten or mowed or spoiled. Because we're trusting in those supplies and not in him. Amen. We need to enter into rest. At just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, that they should not enter my rest. And yet his words were finished from the foundation of the world. And in other words, even before he created the earth, he planned the crossing of the Red Sea. And he planned our fleeing and the tribulation and everything. God is the great architect and planner of all things. He planned this and finished it from the foundations of the world. Amen. So we should be at rest. But he said about these people who crossed the Red Sea and about the people that are going to be in the wrath that they're not going to enter into his rest because he saw their heart their disobedience, their lack of faith, their lack of of trust in him. Amen. They did not trust. If you read all of chapter 3, all of chapter 4, compare it with all the verses it's referring to. Look at all these words that are in the special font referring to Old Testament scriptures. And if you compare all that, it's talking about how the people in the wilderness did not trust God to provide enough manna to, to where they didn't have to go work on the seventh day. They didn't trust God to provide enough food for the future, for the next day. They didn't believe God. They didn't trust God that there would be enough food. Amen. Verse 5, and again, in this passage, they should not enter my rest. Well, I miss verse four. Verse four, he has said in a very specific, in a specific verse concerning the seventh day, and Theo's rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience and unbelief, he again specifies a specific day, going to the context of that we need to rest on the seventh day. He didn't say just rest any old day or worship any old day, but a specific day. Today, saying thus through David after so long time, just as it had been said today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Jesus had given us a new rest day, would he not have spoken of another day after the resurrection? Would he not have spoken that Sunday is the new day of rest, that Sunday is the new day of worship? But he didn't. But he would have. If he, if he had given us a different day of rest and worship, he would have said so after the resurrection. This is what this says. 
So any time that anybody tries to tell you that lie, that the Sabbath is not in the New Testament, don't you tell me that lie. Don't you tell me that lie. Don't, don't, do not even try to tell me that lie. The Sabbath is in the New Testament. Amen. Verse 10, for the one who has entered his rest, talking about the seventh day and talking about being at peace in the Lord. He who has entered that rest, in verse 10, has himself also rested from his works, meaning you don't have to go and work on the seventh day. And also meaning you don't have to be burdened about the supplies. Yet, you got to think about it, but don't be worried about the supplies. In fact, I think some of, some of us can just say, okay, we've got enough. Well, we might could use maybe one more bucket or one more here and there, just a little bit more. But we, we need to be content. And we really need to be content. Remember, was it Gideon that had an army and he had too many men? <laughs> God said, you got too many men to fight this battle. I'm going to send you into war. You're going to win it? But you got too many men. I'm going to take a half away from you. But then he took away, I think, another half. And then he took away so many more until he had a very, very small army. And any military commander would say, Lord, I don't need you to take away my men. I need more men. But God said, you got too many. Let's take away more and let's take away more and let's take away more because I want to send you into battle with only a little bit so you will see my power. So that you would not say to yourself that you won the battle. So that not that you would say to yourself that you had enough supplies or you had enough men or you had enough muscle, but rather the Lord did. I'm going to send you in with the smallest amount of men that I'm going to send you in with, and you're going to know the Lord did it. It would be better for us to enter in with nothing but a backpack and see the Lord do it than for us to enter in with an 18-wheeler semi-truck full of supplies and say, we did it. Amen. You want to see miracles? Go in with nothing but a backpack. Amen. But then we also have the example of when they crossed the Red Sea, they took tons of supplies. And I do believe that God wants us to take a lot of supplies, but it also depends on who you are and what your individual calling is. Some people he may want you to take nothing but a backpack. And others, other people, yes, he does want you to take an 18-wheeler semi-truck. It depends on who you are and what your calling is. Amen but rather he chooses you to take nothing but a backpack or a 18-wheeler truck for supplies. Whatever your calling is, 
Be content with it and trust in the Lord that he will bless it, he will protect it, he will multiply it, and he will take care of the situation. Trust in the Lord. If you have done your part, that's all you can do. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, the Bible says. Once you have done your part, sit down, rest, go to sleep, and let him take care of it. Amen. Trust in the Lord. Let's go to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. One Timothy chapter two. One Timothy chapter two, verse seven. One Timothy two, verse seven. For this I was appointed a preacher. This is Paul talking to Timothy. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and distinction, without division, without being divisions of arguments and different doctrines. He wants unity. But notice here that Paul says he he wants man in every place to pray. Not just at church, not just one day a week, but in your car, in your bedroom, in your privacy, 24-7 as a living sacrifice. And not just some men, and not just the preachers, but all the men lifting up holy hands. Now, lifting up holy hands is more than just praying, it's worshiping. And then you're putting your hands out in front of you up toward the sky in like an expression similar to bowing. It is a form of worship. And really he wants all of us to do this, but also with unity of doctrine and in peace, knowing that God is in control Amen. And verse 9, likewise, I want women to garnish themselves with orderly attire, humbly and self-restraint, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, some people misunderstand this. It's not saying that you cannot have any braided hair It's not saying you can't have any garments. It's not saying that you can't have any gold or any pearls or any costly garments. But what it's saying is, in the context of worship, in the context of going to church and coming into a congregation, that if you're going to have a form of godliness, a look of godliness, that you should not try to dress up fancy 
with braided hair and gold and extra jewelry and a big giant diamond ring just to be seen. Tonight, to try to make yourself look blessed. To try to make yourself look like you're blessed of God, that you're special, that you that you got to sit in a special place, you got to sit on a throne, that you are specially blessed by God. There, there was people in that day and in that time, and even in churches today, that do that. It, it's a sad reality, but it's reality that even to this day there are people that out of pride trying to manifest, manifest themselves out of the appearance of fancy dreary and fancy clothes to be seen by men. It's the same attitude, the same heart of people praying on the street corner to be seen as men or, or looking like they're starving during their fasting and they're looking like this on purpose to be seen as men out of pride. This is the context. And so it's not talking about uh, that you can never braid your hair or anything like this, but it's saying but rather to adore yourself, women, in verse 10, but rather by means of good works. Amen. It's not about your clothing, but it's, about, it's rather it's about the good works, your actions. This is how you should adore yourself. This is what God is looking for. Now, also, do not get this wrong either. It's not saying that you should not dress up for services. It's not saying that either. If you want to dress up for services, that is okay, as long as it's not out of pride, as long as it's not to be looked upon by other people. But rather, you are presenting yourself clean, dignified, respectful, and honorable because you are coming into the presence, a special presence, an intense presence, a more intense manifestation of the theos of Jesus Christ in that sanctuary, a place that is set apart, is sanctified, is set apart for a day and a time for worship. You are coming into a greater presence of the Lord. You are coming into a corporative worship. You're coming into the presence where he fills the temple with his smoke in so much that we cannot stand. That is what we're seeking. That is what we're looking for. Amen. And if everybody will worship the Lord of one mind, of one accord, of one spirit, of one faith, without division, we will come into the smoke and glory of the Lord if people will put our minds on the Lord and not on our clothes and not on what other people are doing. And when you come into the glory of the Lord, into the presence of the Lord, you're laying aside all the weight. You're laying aside your electric bill. You're not worried about your electric bill. Come into the worship of the Lord in presence of, of, of worship, of love, of intimacy, seeking and asking, Lord, we are here. And we open the door to the Lord and we say, come in. And we are seeking that intense presence of the Lord where the building will be full of smoke. And we're seeking that presence of the Lord where we receive the, where we will see the tongues of fire lighting upon us. And people will be speaking in tongues because we are not hindering. We are not quenched in the spirit. 
We are not forbidding speaking in tongues. We are not forbidding shouting. We are not forbidding singing and dancing. If you want to come, if God moves upon you right here, right now, while I'm preaching, to start speaking in tongues, singing or dancing or shouting, then do what the Lord leads you to do. I cannot control you and I cannot control the Lord, but the Lord is the boss of this place. The Lord is the master of this place. He is the leader. He is the speaker. He is in control. This is his congregation and not mine. Amen. Quench not the spirit of the Lord. Amen. We need to get lost in his presence. Amen. So Paul is like, I like men everywhere to lift up holy hands. And holy hands means hands that have not touched pornography. Hands that have not touched the halal. Hands that have not been defiled. Hands that have not touched the Christmas tree, that pagan idol from Assyria. Hands that have not watched the horror movies. Hands that are not focusing and worshiping on NFL or Olympics. But let us be clean unto the Lord spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and even physically when we come into the presence of the Lord. Let us present our bodies a living sacrifice and say, here I am, I am clean, I am acceptable for you. We don't have to go through all the ritual of washing our hands five times a day or whatever it is, whatever it was. We don't have to go through the ritual of doing all, of of dunking our body in the the water and all this, all that old, old covenant, primitive men, elementary teaching type of stuff. But nevertheless, nothing wrong with brushing our teeth. Nothing wrong with grooming our hair. When, uh, people should have fear of the Lord. And some people think that when you, go, when you go to church, you can just get up out of bed and just come without grooming your hair, without combing your hair, without changing your shirt, coming in with uh, uh, dirt and filth and shorts, and flip-flops, and just come any old way. And you know, that's better than nothing. But I think we need to be more honorable than that. I think when we come into the presence and glory of the Lord in a sanctified place, that we need to remember we're coming to see the king. We're coming to see the president. And who wouldn't get dressed up to see the president? But we don't get dressed up to see the Lord. Would you or would you not? I know I would. If I knew I was going to meet President Trump at 2 o'clock p.m., I would put on my boots. I would shine my boots, my black boots, my dress shoes. I'd put on a dress shirt. might even put on a tie for President Trump. I might do that for him. How much more should we do such type of things for the Lord, not for other people, not for to be looked upon by men, but to be looked upon by the Lord that we have gone out of the way to make ourselves honorable, respectable for the Lord. Amen. People, some people put down preachers, 
for dressing too fancy. They should not do that. I can understand cutting down the preacher for having a giant mansion and so many cars and so many airplanes and using up the tides for his own benefit. I can understand that of condemning the preacher for putting the money in his pocket. I can understand condemning the preacher for that. But let's not as, let us not condemn any preacher or church member for putting on nice clothes for the Lord. Look at the instruction where God told Aaron to dress in gold and silver and to have the nicest clothing to preach in, to minister in, to serve in the temple. Aaron was supposed to be decked out from top to bottom. And if that's what God expected from Aaron, then why should we condemn a preacher today for dressing nice for the Lord, unless he does it out of pride. And that is the heart, it's the intent. It's not the clothing, it's not the flesh, it's the intent. If he is doing it for the Lord, do not condemn him. Amen. At the same time, neither should we forbid somebody to come in here in shorts, tank top, dirty clothes. Many times I have allowed people to come in here dirty clothes. Didn't say a word to them and I will never do so until the time comes that they need to grow and they need the teaching and they need to hear that we need to grow in respect and honor and glory for the Lord. But not in a condemning way but in an instructing way in a teaching way in a leading way. Let us lift up holy hands. Let us worship the Lord in all times, all places, 24-7. Now let us go to uh, Isaiah 26. We'll go to the Old Testament now. Isaiah 26. Now I'll give you a couple of corrections. I hope that you have an ink pen ready. And these verses are going to kind of seem confusing to us because I'm starting to learn more and more and more Isaiah 26. I'm starting to learn more and more how different the Greek Setudian is from our modern translations. Isaiah 26, page 374 in the black and white edition. Isaiah 26, verse 1. Isaiah 26, verse 1. In that day, they shall sing this song in the land of Judea, saying, Behold, a strong city, and he shall make salvation its wall and its bulwark. There's nothing wrong with that word. There's nothing wrong with that translation. We may just need to explain it. 
that uh, a bulwark is a uh, a line of defense, a uh, a uh, embattlement defense. And it says, open your gates, let the nation enter that keeps righteousness and keeps truth. The context of this is talking about uh, when Jesus comes back. The day he comes back and the following days and weeks after that, that we're going to be singing a song. We're going to be worshiping in the land of Judea. And we're going to be singing the whole strong city talking about Jerusalem. And he should make salvation his fall and his bullock. So, in other words, hey, we see the buildings of Jerusalem. Hey, that's just flesh. Those are just, those are just stones. Those are just rocks and brick and mortar. But spiritually, Jerusalem represents salvation to us. It's a holy place. It's a sanctuary. And he is making salvation. It's wall. So he's making this city holy. He's sanctifying it. He's cleaning it. And he's bringing truth and salvation. He's bringing his people. He's bringing his church. He's bringing his bride. And verse 2, we'll open the gates and let the nation, meaning us, this is not talking about a physical nation. It's talking about a spiritual nation, spiritual walls, and a spiritual people entering into the presence of God and into this spiritual condition. Enter in, let the nation us enter that keeps righteousness and keep truth. Verse 3, support in truth and keep in peace for on you, O Jesus. Now that word keeping can be translated many different ways. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to keep the word keeping but I'm going to add on to it, uh, I'm going to say keeping slash preserve, preserve slash observing. So I'm going to have three words there. You can put it at the end of the sentence if you want to. Uh, it's going to be keeping slash preserve slash observing, observing. Because that word has so many different meanings. And in King James, what it actually says in King James is uh, perfect peace has he whose mind is stayed on thee. Something like that. Perfect peace has he whose mind is stayed on thee. Something like that, King James. So it's saying these righteous people who keep truth, who keeps righteousness, supporting truth, that they are preserving peace. They're preserving peace. That word preserving can also even be translated guarding peace. But I, I, I chose the word preserve rather than guarding, but it can be another, another word is guarding. But preserve is like, you're guarding, you're keeping it, you're protecting it, you're preserving it. In other words, you're maintaining peace, 
So even maintaining, you can translate it a million different ways. No matter how you translate it, it all means the same thing. You're holding on to. In fact, it can even be translated as holding on to. Okay? So however you translate it, it still means the same thing, that you're, you're keeping peace. You're keeping. It's okay to keep the word keeping. You're keeping peace. You're maintaining. You're taking. You're holding on to it. You're preserving it. You're guarding it. You're observing it. You have peace. Amen. You have peace. Because you're supporting the truth. And the word supporting can mean uh, laying hand on, uh, keeping it from falling, supporting it. You're, you're, you're holding it to where it won't fall. You're supporting it. You're supporting it up. You're holding that up. You're taking hand on to it. You're doing something to maintain that truth. You're doing something to hold on to that truth, to keep that truth from falling away. You're supporting the truth. You're giving your tithes. You're listening. You're, you're, you're emailing. You're fellowshipping. You're keeping in contact with the ministry. You're doing something to support the truth. And because you're doing this, because you're being active, you have peace. Because you're listening to services, because you're reading the Bible, because you're fasting, because you're worshiping, because you're praying, because you're observing the commandments, keeping the commandments. In all these different ways, you are supporting the truth. And because of this, because of all of this, you are preserving, guarding, keeping, and keeping peace. These things should not cause distress. Knowing prophecy should not cause distress. Knowing true doctrine should not cause distress. Actually, all these things should bring more peace. To know the truth about heaven and hell should bring more peace. To know the truth about the Sabbath day and the holy days should bring more peace. Not more burden, but more peace. Amen. To know the truth, to keep the truth, to observe the truth, to support the truth, these things should bring us more peace, not less peace. We should not be losing peace, but rather keeping and preserving and guarding and observing peace. Amen. Verse 4. They have trusted with confidence forever, the great, the eternal, the others. We have confidence. We're trusting the confidence. We're trusting the ability of the Lord. Verse 5. Who has humbled and brought down that dwell on high, he's bringing down the powerful. He's bringing down the kings. He's bringing down the evil judges. He brought down them that dwell on high, meaning powerful people and people in high authority. Bringing those people down, you shall cast down strong cities, it says. Babylon, Jericho, Mecca, New York, Washington, D.C., Tyran, Damascus. They're going to all be brought down. Not just Babylon. The Bible says, something like this, like many cities, I think it says many cities will be brought down. 
not just only the city of Babylon. And it says here that you shall cast down strong cities, as in pearl, more than one city, and bring them to the ground. And verse 6, and the feet of the meek and the lowly shall trample them. Now, this is a prophecy of destruction of cities, more than one city. But it's not in the context of a negative thing. It's not in the context of something that we should be anxious about or worried about or burdened about. But rather, it's actually a promise of good things that those cities will be destroyed, that those cities will be brought down, that the evil kings and the presidents of the world that have brought only injustice to us and not justice, that they will be brought down, that the rich and the high and the mighty of the people, the evil leaders, will be brought down. These things should actually bring us peace and joy. These are good things, not bad. It says in verse 6, that our feet, the feet of the meek and the lowly, the feet, the feet of the poor, the persecuted, the despised, the hated, our feet shall trample them down. Remember Malachi 4? says the last chapter of the entire Old Testament. says that the day shall come that shall burn as an oven, that shall burn the wicked. They shall be stubble. And it says that nothing shall be left of them, neither root nor branch shall be left of them. And it says that that the feet of the righteous, what has it say? That the wicked shall be ashes. It says that the wicked shall be ashes under our feet. The wicked shall be ashes under our feet. So here it says the feet of the meek and the lowly shall trample them. We're going to be stepping on the rubble of the masses and of Babylon. And we're going to say, take that! Because I am in the kingdom of the Lord. We are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. We are the soldiers of the Lord. We are the armies of the Lord. Victory is ours. This is the lesson of Karen. This is the lesson of Hanukkah. This is the lesson of the holy days. We have the victory. Put our focus, our mind, our eyes on the finish line. We are promised. It is written in the Bible. It is written. It cannot be erased. It cannot be crossed out. That we are going to receive the kingdom and the victory. Victory is ours. Victory belongs to us, says the Lord. Amen the fall of these cities and the fall of the devil's kingdom, the fall of this world and the fall or the end of this age is not a negative thing to worry about, but something to shout about, something to praise God about, the end of this misery, the end of wickedness, the end of false religion, the end of false doctrine and false prophecy. The end of evil, of rape, of murder, of abortion, and the beginning of the fullness of the kingdom of God, that thousand years is going to be a lot better than what we have right now. And the hundred years will also be much, much better than what we have right now.
And then once we get into paradise, the new heaven, new earth, then there will be no pain at all, no suffering at all, no more death, no more crying, no more suffering, no more curse, no more thorns on the rose bush. You'll be able to pick roses and, and, and rub your hand all over the rose bush without having a thorn. There'll be no more thorns in the new heaven and new earth. The, 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 the earth itself will not be hard to dig into because that was part of the curse as well. There'll be no more childbirth, no more pain, no more PMS, no more administration periods, no more uh, any of these women problems or men problems. Amen. It's a glorious thing to think about. Maybe we should think about it more. Wonderful things to think about. Amen. Now let's look at Psalm 22. Book of Psalms, chapter 22. Page 309 in the black and white edition. Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 22, verse 1. For the end, concerning the morning aid, a song of David. Now it says, for the end. If you look at it, Psalm 21, it says that. Psalm 20 says it. Psalm 19, Psalm 18 says it. So there's a lot of psalms that says, for the end. What does that mean? It, it can mean a lot of different things. It can mean for the end of the day, meaning in the evening, that you read that psalm in the evening before bed. It can also mean for the, uh, the last day of a holy day, for the last day of the feast, or last day of another holy day, uh, even for the last day of a month. Any ending. And if it's any ending, then even for our end times, that for our day and for our time of the end time generation as well, there's many ways you can take that. Now it says, it says for the end concerning the morning aid. So that could be taken as uh, weeping may endure for night, joy come in the morning. That is for the end. For the evening, for the nighttime, but thinking upon the morning is encouragement for the next day. But even though you're reading it last thing at night, is encouragement for that next morning. It's a morning aid, a morning help, a song of David. So it may be an encouragement for us in the end time generation looking upon paradise, looking upon what's going to be our morning of the next new age, the new world. Take it like that as well. Then it says, O Theo, my Theo, attend to me. Why have you forsaken me? The account of my transgressions is far from my salvation. So this song is saying, starts out as like a, kind of a desperation, a crying out. It's like I'm not always feeling your presence. You know, we all have those moments often. 
We all have those moments, often, that we don't feel the presence of the Lord and we feel like he's not hearing our prayers and he's not answering our prayers and he's hiding from us and he's forsaken us. All of us have those moments. That's natural because we're in this flesh. And until we shed this flesh, we're going to be hindered because God is spirit and we are flesh. And this flesh is like a curtain. It's like a wall separating us. And we need to seek the spirit. We need to ask God to penetrate this flesh, penetrate this hard mind, penetrate this hard heart, come into us, let us feel his presence more. And that comes through crying out, crying out, saying, where are you? Why? Where are you, Lord? And it says, oh, Theos, my Theos, attend to me, pay attention to me. Hello? Why have you forsaken me? It's crying out to him there. The account of my transgressions is far from my salvation. Oh, my Theos, I will cry to you by day, but you don't hear. Where are you? By night, and it should not be accounted for folly to me. But you, the praise of Israel, dwell in a sanctuary. That's bad translation. Cross out in a sanctuary. And I'd like for you to write after this sentence. I'm going to give you an entirely new, an entirely new sentence even though you only crossed out three words or three or four words. I'm going to give you the whole sentence that I'd like for you to write at the end of this verse. And I'm not for sure if this is 100% perfect in English because this verse is, can, it can be translated <clears throat> different ways. But what I'm going to give you is a perfect word-by-word straight translation, which is not always the best way to do it, contrary to what you might think. Because when you do word-by-word straight translation like I'm going to give you, sometimes it's not the way it should be translated in English because in the Greek and the English, the words get changed around sometimes. And I don't know whether we're supposed to change the arrangement of the words or keep it. So to be on the safe side, I'm going to give you exactly what it says in the Greek without changing the arrangements of the words. And then we're going to dissect it from there and explain it. Okay? So this is word by word in the Greek in English. But you... Dwell in holy, H-O-L-Y, holy, comma, the praise of Israel. One more time. But you dwell in holy, the praise of Israel. Okay? 
Now, the word sanctuary that you crossed out, Sir Lancelot Brenton, when he translated the Greek Centurion in the 1800s, he chose the word sanctuary um, rather than the word holy. But almost all modern translations use the word holy. And if you use that, if you look at that same Greek word in the New Testament, many times it is translated as the word holy. Sometimes it's translated as the word saint. And it can be even translated as, uh, but it should not, it should not be saint. And I'll tell you why it should not be saint. It's because in this sentence, it's being used as an adjective. So see, sometimes in order to get the right translation, you don't just look at the word, but also how it's being used. Is it a noun? Is it a verb? Is it an adjective? And that comes with having to learn Greek structure. So you can't just look at the word by itself. You have to look at the structure of the sentence. And then by doing that, you determine it's an adjective, not a noun. Since it's not a noun, it should not be the word sanctuary, because sanctuary is a noun. And saints would be a noun. So we're left with holy. And holy can be an adjective, meaning it is a word that describes, right? But you dwell in holy. Well, in English, that don't make sense, because you just don't say that. So we might can take it as being that we are holy. And so that's why some translations would put saint. But that would be not accurate because that's a noun. But it can be talking about saints, that we are holy. Uh, But you dwell in holy. So it could be that you dwell in holiness, but then that would be a noun, okay? But that can still be what it's talking about, that you dwell in holiness. What does King James say? King James says something like this, and this might not be perfect word by word, I'm just going by memory, but King James says something like this, that You inhabit the praises of your people. But you inhabit, dwell, inhabit the praises of your people. Okay? So they're translating it to mean holy is the saints. That is, your people. Now, whether we uh, translate it that way or not, we're left with as you dwell in holy. The bottom line is this. Here's the bottom line. God dwells in holiness. God dwells in the saints. God dwells where there is the presence of holiness, sacredness. He comes into a sanctuary that is dedicated to him. Uh, The sanctuary is anointed. The, The sanctuary is set apart, sanctified for worship. You know, we don't just come into the sanctuary uh, 
just to eat or just to play a game or watch TV or something like that. We don't treat it that way. This sanctuary is holy. It is sanctified. It is set apart. The only thing we do in this room is pray, have services, worship, things like that. And so we could say that he dwells in holy when we're talking about the sanctuary. But we have traditionally thought of this verse as in the context of he's dwelling in us, that we are his temple, we are his sanctuary, we are his temple, we are his people, we are where he dwells, and that he dwells in us, and especially when we praise him. Then the last part of this verse, the praise of Israel, that can be taken two different ways. But the word praise is singular, not plural. So we can't say praise us. Praises, we can't say praises. Because it's singular. So the praise of Israel. Well, the Greek Orthodox Bible and some other Bibles that's translated out of the Greek Tudian believes that the praise of Israel is referring to Jesus. That is a title for Jesus. But he is the praise of Israel. But you dwell in holy. The praise of Israel. But also the praise of Israel can be the temple. But King James, New American Standard, and a lot of other Bibles believe that it means that he dwells in our praises. It might. Kind of confusing, I confess. But what's the bottom line? No matter how you translate this, when you're dissecting word by word, don't get so confused. Don't let words become a stumbling block. What is the spirit behind it? That's what we need to ask ourselves. What is the principle? What is the teaching? Teaching is that he is dwelling where there is holiness. And that there are praises, whether he is the praise of Israel or whether we are praising whatever word it is, there are praises. And we can look at many, 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 many other verses of the Bible where it talks about us praising him in song, in musical instrument, in shout, in dance. So you don't have to look at just one verse. There's many verses that talks about us praising him. And we know that when we praise him, he comes, he pays, he pays us attention right back. He don't ignore us. You know, he responds back to our praise. And remember Paul and Silas in the jail, in the midnight hour. They were singing praises to him. And he came. He caused the earthquake, and he saved the entire family that night. So when we praise God, and when we become a holy people, and when we become the temple of the Lord, he will come to us and he will dwell. And when he comes to us, we're going to feel his presence. We're going to feel the peace that comes to us by him coming to us, by him dwelling with us, 
by him responding to our praises and responding to us getting our lives clean, he's going to come to us. So however you translate this, the point is the same, that we are seeking his presence and that we should worship him and praise him and we should receive peace out of this. Amen? Amen. Let's go to one last place, Psalm 16. It's just another page over here, Psalm 16. All of the songs are songs, S-O-N-G-S, songs. These songs were written down for worship, for praise. And so when you're down in song, you can just walk around this book of songs and, and read these songs that were written down. Originally, they would have music and musical instruments, and these were actually songs actually sung in church. Some of them was written specifically for the Feast of Tabernacles or for Pentecost or Passover or for the seventh day. And some of them was written for our private worship as well. And we can use all of them for our private worship and our church worship now in these days. Now, Psalm 16, verse 1, the writing of David. David himself wrote this particular song. Some songs was written by other people. The book of Psalms was gathered over hundreds of years. Even some of it was after even David was dead. But this particular song, David actually wrote this song. It says, keep me, Jesus, for I have hoped or trusted in you. I said to Jesus, you are my Lord. You have no need of my goodness. Don't misinterpret that. We know that he expects us to be good. But what David is saying, you're God, and I'm just human. And anything I can do is really, you know, almost nothing. I mean, you're God. That's what he's doing. He's saying, you're God. I'm but human. Verse 3, on behalf of the saints that are in his land, he has magnified all his pleasure in them. Their weaknesses have been multiplied. Afterward, they hasted. I will by no means assemble their bloody meetings. Neither will I make mention of their names of my lips. So what David is saying there is pagan people worshiping false gods. I will not join their churches. I will not go to those churches. I will not assemble and gather with those people, and neither will I praise their false gods. I won't even mention Yahshua. I won't even mention Yahweh. I won't even mention Allah. Not that it would be a sin to speak those words, but those gods are so nasty, so horrible, so abominable, I don't even want to say their names. And I would definitely not even go to their churches or read their websites or their book. David's not saying all of that, but that, that's what he would say if he was alive today. Amen. 
if David was alive today, he would say, I would not read their websites and their books. Amen. But what he said in that day and time, I would not go to their assembly. I would not even make mention of their names. Verse 5, Jesus is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. You are he that restores my inheritance. That sounds very familiar to Psalm 23. When he says Jesus is my inheritance and of my cup, he's using the analogy of a cup of water or a cup of wine. And actually a cup of wine is more in agreement with what it really means and some preparing it to Psalm 23. And my cup is full and my cup is running over. In other words, I'm not looking at my cup and saying it's empty and I'm in need and I ain't got supply and I ain't got food and I ain't got water and I ain't got nourishment and I ain't got this and I ain't got that. But rather I'm looking at my cup and I'm saying it is full of the glory of the Lord. I am satisfied. I am content. And it is overflowing with wine. I feel good. I am happy. Amen. And you are he that restores my inheritance to me. Verse 6, the lines have fallen to me in the best places. Yes, I have a most excellent inheritance. When it's talking about the lines have fallen to me, it's like a lottery, like throwing a dice, that the choices that have been made and the situations that have been done and everything that is happening is for the best. It has fallen to me that the, the dice has rolling the best for me. What it needs to be for me by God's instruction, by God's ordain. Verse 7, I will bless Jesus, meaning I will worship Jesus, who has instructed me. My reigns, too, have chastised me even until the night. So he has been disciplined by the Lord. He has had problems. He has had tribulations. But he's still going to bless the Lord. He's still going to worship the Lord. Verse 8, I foresaw Jesus always before my face, but he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. David is not saying that he's literally seeing Jesus, but he knows Jesus is there, always, always there before his face. He is always there by the right. He's always traveling with him 24-7, that I should not be moved Meaning he should not be shaken out of place, that he should not be trembling, that he should not be moved out of place, that he's going to stay in the center of God's will, he's not going to fall away from God, he's not going to fall away from Jesus, he's going to stay in the center of God's will, knowing and realizing that God is there, present with him. Verse 9, therefore my heart rejoiced, and my heart rejoiced, I know that's spelled wrong a little bit, you've got two E's there. And therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest. Hebrews 4. Rest. Not be overburdened, not be overanxious, not be overworking, but rest in hope or in trust. That word hope can be translated as trust. In fact, I'm just going to mark it out, but trust. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in trust. 
Verse 10, because you would not leave my soul in the grave, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption. That means two things. There is a resurrection coming. I might die, but oh what? Oh well, because I will be resurrected. You will not leave my soul in the grave. Amen. Neither will you suffer, meaning allow. That's what the word suffer means there, is allow. Your Holy One, talking about Jesus, to see corruption. This was a prophecy saying that Jesus will not stay in the tomb, will not stay in the grave, but will be resurrected, and that his body, the body of Jesus, would not decay, would not be corrupted. He would be raised from the dead three days and three nights later. So it's a prophecy. But there's more than one meaning. Not only is it referring to Jesus, but it's also referring to himself, David himself. is saying that he will be raised from the dead as well. Now his body would see corruption. I'm sure the body of David eventually over thousands of years did rot, did see decay, did see corruption. So that's how we know that it's referring to Jesus in one aspect, in one meaning. It has to be referring to Jesus because Jesus would be the only body that ever existed that died and yet did not see decay. Amen. So he knows referring to Jesus as well. Verse 11, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will fill me with joy. Not just a little bit of joy, but fill me with joy with your countenance, meaning your glory, your brightness, your presence. At your right hand there are delights forever. As long as we are standing with Jesus, there are delights, joy, forever. We stand with the Lord and we can have joy and peace and content. Amen. Okay, so that's uh, the conclusion of the sermon. I do have a homework assignment, assignment for everyone. And the homework assignment is I would like for everyone, encourage everyone to please read the book of Esther. And you can start on that today or tomorrow or the next day whenever you have time, but sometime soon. I encourage you to read the entire book of Esther because Perm is coming up March 1st. I know that's over a month away but there are some prophecies that have been released and will be released that do deal with the book of Esther and how the book of Esther is, has a connection with end-time prophecy dealing with the Antichrist, the son of perdition, the president of Syria, and the false prophet, which is both popes. Office of false prophet has two men, two fallen angels, both popes. That is one office of Pope to 
two men in that office, two horns. So when we say false prophet, even though it's referring to two men, we're referring to one office that they are in, the office of Pope. So the son of perdition and the false prophet are a connection with Pern, connection with Esther, connection with end time prophecies and events. This is something that we need to read and review, be thinking about, so that if you've read the entire book of Esther, then when I eventually release some more information, you'll be able to understand better what I'm saying. We have to build foundations. We have to lay the pavement for the road if we want to travel the road of life and revelation and understanding. We have to pave the road, prepare the road for more understanding. And that's what we're going to do by reading the book of Esther, to prepare your mind and your understanding for greater and more revelations to come. Amen. So thank you for listening today. I encourage you to spend the rest of the seventh day. Uh, if in, in your time zone, if there's any time left of the seventh day, to spend it in rest, in prayer, in reading the Bible, in thinking upon the Lord, in worship of the Lord Jesus, prayer, reading the Bible, resting, fellowship, gathering of other true brothers and sisters if there are in your local area. Um, you can even watch a Christian faith-based movie if you want to because that way you're resting and relaxing in the Lord but you're still thinking upon the Lord and uh, spiritual things. So that's susceptible. But do not go about your normal routine of what you do every day with you. Make this day different, sanctified, set apart for the rest of the week. Amen. And rest. Go to bed early tonight. Rest. Get extra rest. Catch up on your sleep. Give your body a chance to heal and uh, rest. This is what this day is created for, is worship and rest. Uh, and enjoy this time and this opportunity to worship, to fellowship, to rest, to read the Bible, a time when we are not so hurried in our everyday routine and work and chores and responsibilities. So this is a day that should be pleasurable to us, not a burden, but not the same type of place that we would have every other day of watching football and playing carnal games and worldly games. and Not that it's wrong to play a game, but rather that that is for the rest of the week. This day is set apart and it should be different from the rest of our week. So if anybody has any questions about anything I've said, feel free to email me. And uh, let's keep Lisa in prayer for her travels on March. Tuesday and Wednesday, maybe Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, something like that. Uh, and her evangelism, as far as distributing the flyers and, and different things that she distributes, 
Let's continue to pray about the distribution of the Alpha and Omega Bible. Continue to pray for Brittany's health, for my health, my energy, my strength. Pray for the ministry in general. Uh, We do have close to 600 people per week reading the newsletter. They're not all subscribed to the newsletter, but close to 600 per week right now reading the newsletter. That does not count the ministry website or YouTube or the Bible downloads or the Bible website or the men's website. That's just only about the newsletter itself. Uh, then I forget the number, whatever I sent an email recently, over 2,000 uh, people for the actual ministry website, uh, over 2,000 people per week coming to the ministry website, and that does not include the newsletter or the men's ministry or the YouTube ministry or the doctrine ministry or other ministries that we do have. I do hope that people recognize that we have a lot of ministries. It's called I Saw the Light Ministries in the Pearl, meaning more than one ministry. We have the men ministry. We have the anti-drug ministry. We have the proof that God is real ministry. We have a ministry trying to reach out to help people come out of homosexuality. A ministry that's distributing clothes when they come in here for clothing or Bibles or literature. We have that ministry. And different ministries, different ways that we're reaching out to people. We have the Bible ministry and the, and the crosses, giving out the crosses and so forth. So there is a lot that this ministry is doing for the Lord. It's reaching a lot of people. It is reaching a lot of people. So we praise the Lord for that. We praise Jesus that he is doing a work. He is preaching and he is teaching and he is revealing that he is reaching out to the lost, that he is reaching out there to the world, and he is leading people to this ministry. They may be slow about coming to full repentance and submission, but they are coming to this ministry. They are finding it. God is leading them to this ministry. It is effective. It is efficient. I might not say every word perfect. I may stumble my words at times. I may speak a strange dialect to you. And I may not express every word perfectly as good as you could say it. But the ministry is reaching people and is effective. And it's doing what God wants it to do. This is not the final day. One day at a time. And it is not meant for there to be hundreds of true followers yet. It's only meant right now for only for there to be hundreds of people reading the website, reading the ministry, reading the newsletter, whatever. And whatever it's meant to do, that is what it's meant to do. We are not slacking. We are not insufficient in what we are doing. We're doing what we're supposed to do. 
and the number of people that are coming to the ministry is no less nor nor more than what it's supposed to be. It is what it is and what it is ordained to be. Amen. So I say all this to help people to understand that we are where we're supposed to be and I hope that this will bring you peace and contentment and joy and excitement and praise to the God Almighty who is the head of this ministry, that he is the head of this ministry, he is the head of this church, and he is in control. And let's be content and happy with where we are with the number of people. When God chooses to bring more people, he will bring the people. I could spend a million dollars if I had it, and it would not bring any more people unless God chooses to bring people. Amen? It is not our works. It is not our goodness. It is not our attempt that brings the people. No man can come into the Father or to Jesus. No man can come to Jesus unless the Father brings him. Amen? doesn't matter what we do. No man can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. Amen? So we pray that we embrace and accept God's will. And that should be sufficient for us. Amen? If God chooses to bring one more person or five more people, then we will praise God for that. And if no other man comes for another month or year, then we will praise God for that because it is his choice as long as we're doing what we're supposed to do. Now, if we step out of line of his will, then we have reason to fear and to fret. If we step out of line, if we do things we're not supposed to be doing or not do things we're supposed to be doing, whatever, vice versa, then that's when we need to get concerned and worried and get it fixed if we step outside outside of God's will. But if we're in God's will, then we are to be content and satisfied with the result of his works. Amen? Uh, who are we to say to God, you need to bring more people? We are to be satisfied with the results of his work. If it's him doing the work, let us not give God an F. But let us give God an A plus and be happy and satisfied with with the results of God's work. And let us praise God even right here, right now, let us pray. Lord Heavenly Father, that we become more and more content, happy and satisfied with the results of your work. We'll do our work, you'll do your work. And 
and be satisfied with the results thereof according to your will, your direction, your anointing, your blessing. We surrender to you. We ask you, Father, again, that you bring us into the center of your will. Guide our thoughts, our hearts, our direction, our works to be into the center of your will. And once we have done what we can do, that we would stand still and see the salvation of the Lord and see how you would deliver us with a small army, how that you will save the world with a small army, how that you will witness to thousands of people with a small congregation and only with only two witnesses in Jerusalem, that yes, Korea will be saved, that yes, Australia will be saved, that yes, America will be saved, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Even if all the buildings fall, even if, if all of the nuclear reactors explode, even if there is nuclear war and famine and disease and blood all over the land, that you have promised to preserve a remnant of your people, and you will protect some of your people. And, you, and the people you have chosen to protect will be protected. It don't matter how many nuclear reactors there is. It doesn't matter how many nuclear bombs go off. You are God. You made the sun, which is hotter than any nuclear weapon that mankind can make. You created the sun, the moon, and every star that fills the sky. And the earth is the only your footstool. You are God, and we believe that you are able and willing to preserve a people for your inheritance in every nation, as the Bible says. The Bible says that there will be a great multitude, a great multitude from every nation and every language that these people will be saved, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, meaning saved. It will happen. You are in control. You are Lord, Father. You are the head of this ministry, of this church, and we will see the victory. Let us not lose hope and let us not lose sight of the victory that is written and promised unto us, your people. Help our unbeliefs. Help us get rid of our poor thinking. Help us, Lord, to have great faith and to trust in you, in your ability, in your power, and help us to think positively. Help us to be encouraged and help us, Lord Father, to be in the center of your will. As long as we're in the center of your will, it's going to be okay whether we live or die. 
Let us just be in the center of your will and be happy and joyful and content and have great gratitude. Gratitude that is so great is what we seek, that we would have such a great gratitude for all things that our gratitude would just wash away negative thoughts, negative feelings, anxiety, and cure. That gratitude, worship, and praise replace the negative. I pray, Father, for the church right here, right now, that the people grow in trust, belief, joy, and peace, and gratitude, and positive thinking, that we become a woman, a bride that is smiling, whose eyes are sparking, twinkling, that you look into our eyes and see a beauty in our heart. That you, when you look into our eyes, into our heart, into our minds, that you would see a beautiful bride without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. A bride that is prepared for you, that is dressed in clean, white, fancy linen, the best linen that there can be made, that we be dressed like that for you spiritually. That we would be a beautiful bride for you, Father and that we would come into greater intimacy with you, Father, that we would come to know you in a very intimate way and feel your presence and feel you pressing up against us and cuddling with us, that we would come into that abode, into that place every morning, every night, that we would come into that place of feeling your presence and that one day we would see your smoke, Lord, that we would see you, feel your presence, I pray, Lord Father, that you would pour out the gift of tongues upon this congregation. I pray, Lord Father, that you would give A.J. the gift of tongues, the gift of language. Father, that you would fill his mind, his heart, his spirit, his skills, his talents with the gift, the spiritual empowerment of the understanding of languages and the speaking forth of languages, that you would endow him from on high with that gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues, if so this be your will, Father. And I pray, Lord Father, your will for Lisa, for Kiki, for Michael, for Melissa, for Jonathan, for me, desire for meekness for other people for anyone that listens to these services and for the people that are being brought to the newsletter and to the new or and or to the website or any of our ministries your ministries that they would come more into the center of your will we trust you, Father. We leave it in your hands. We're leaving it at the altar. And we back away only so far from the altar 
because we'll never leave the altar. We'll never stop praying. We'll never stop worshiping. You are with us day and night. We're leaving different from this sanctuary today. We're leaving from this sermon different today. We're leaving more empowered. We're leaving, not leaving, we're not leaving your presence, but you will go with us from this moment forth. Father, thank you for what you have done. No more requests in this prayer, but only thanks and gratitude. Thank you, Father, for what you have done. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. Good night, my friends, and good day. All of this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.